You almost surely know the saying, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Wikipedia calls that a philosophical thought experiment. I have a similar thought experiment question to ask on today's Pop Agriculture podcast. If there's been a huge positive change in the way that farmers control pests, but most of society doesn't know about it, does that story still count? I think it does, but the story needs to be told, and that's what I want to do. And that story starts with something called IPM. When I started graduate school at the University of California in Davis in 1977, my major professor was part of an interdepartmental graduate group for what was called Integrated Pest Management, or IPM. At the time, that was a fairly new idea, but it was starting to catch on both in academia and in the farming community. It was an outgrowth of the broader environmental movement, which had started in the 1960s, and had already led to the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, in 1970. What had happened was that society had become increasingly aware of the potential health and environmental issues related to some chemicals. But to understand how that came to be, we need to look back at what was happening a few decades earlier. So back in the 1940s and 50s, the field of chemistry had really come to play a major role in modern society. People were excited about because it was improving life in many ways. It's hard to imagine this now, but new chemicals and things made from them were considered to be cool, even to be breakthroughs. For instance, the DuPont Chemical Company had the slogan, Better Living Through Chemistry, and it introduced popular consumer products like nylon for clothing or hosiery and Teflon pans for cooking. Synthetic chemicals, from plastics to medicines to fabrics to automotive parts to paint, certainly did change our lives for the better, but we were learning that some chemicals could be problematic. When the new synthetic chemical insecticide DDT was introduced in the United States in 1945, it was hailed as a lifesaver. And the Swiss chemist who invented DDT was awarded the Nobel Prize in medicine. DDT wasn't acutely toxic to humans, and it did a great job of controlling pests. It had dramatic benefits for the control of mosquito-borne diseases all around the world. I have friends who grew up in the Midwest in the 1950s, and they tell me that when the mosquito abatement sprayer truck would drive down the street spraying, the kids would happily follow along on their bikes. Seriously, this was a thing in the 1950s. As it was mostly well critiqued in Rachel Carson's influential book, Silent Spring, It turned out that DDT had some serious issues to be addressed. As the new science of environmental toxicology developed in the 1960s, we started to understand that a chemical like DDT could persist for a long time in the environment and that it could bioaccumulate in the food chain so that birds and particularly top predators like eagles might get enough in their diet that it would disrupt the integrity of their eggshells. As this evidence emerged, DDT was banned in the U.S. in 1972, and soon it was banned throughout much of the world. That problematic example, however, sort of became etched in our collective consciousness as a danger of chemicals in general and pesticides specifically. 
Ironically, the next generation of insecticides that came out after the DDT debacle was a category that got around the long-term persistence and bioaccumulation issues, but it was much more acutely toxic to mammals, e.g. us, although that's always demonstrated using rats. These were the OPs, or organophosphates. In the 1960s, these seemed like a great alternative to DDT. They didn't persist or bioaccumulate, some of them could be pretty toxic to animals in the short term. When I first got into ag in 1977, OPs were the mainstay of both crop and household insect control. I often had to enter vineyards with warning signs because they had just been sprayed with a product called parathion, which is really super toxic compared to almost any pesticide that's used today. And my wife's first job in Davis, California, was at the bee biology lab on the campus. And they were working on a dead bee trap project. What was happening was that the, these OP insecticides like parathion were being sprayed in orchards or other crops where there were bees pollinating, and it could kill the bees. They'd go back to the hive and, and die. Well, bees are really good at removing their dead fellows from the hive and carrying them a long ways away, so it was hard to document these bee kills so that the beekeeper could be compensated. What my wife was working on were modifying the exits to the hive so that when the worker bee came out with the dead bee, it would drop its sad little burden into a holder, but that hopefully they could come in and out and do all the other normal functions. It turned out to be really hard to achieve because when they'd get one that would work for the dead bees, it would make it hard for the drones, the small minority of males in the hive, to come in and out, and they have to come out occasionally for mating. Guys, they're always such a problem. Well, the bee biology team didn't actually succeed in making a functional dead bee trap during that summer my wife worked there. Now, you've probably seen ominous articles and reports about bee health. None of these current issues are anything like what was going on in the 1970s. I think if bees survived that time period, I'm not that worried about them now. And actually, the whole thing is a lot more complicated, and I'll do a podcast on that topic sometime soon. So, back to the concept of IPM. Well, there were progressive entomologists in the 70s. Those are the folks that study insects. And they said, let's look at the way we deal with pests in crops. Yeah, pests are a big deal, but we need to change the way we deal with them. The standard practice at the time was maybe to spray something like an OP insecticide on a strict calendar basis, say every two or three weeks through the growing season. And that approach worked in the sense that the farmer got a good crop yield but it was becoming increasingly clear that this approach wasn't so great for the environment, for the bees, or ultimately for the consumer. So the progressive insect control experts asked the question, how could we do a much more careful but still effective application program? And what they came up with was a system based on several things. First of all, they started monitoring for the presence of the pests and its population levels. They worked out ways to do sweep net sampling or maybe have some sort of traps and it would show them how many of the problematic pests were around at any given time. Then they started establishing thresholds for how many pests had to be there before it made economic sense to spend the money for the chemical, the tractor, and the labor to, to go out and do the pesticide application. They also looked for ways to encourage natural biological control mechanisms that tend to keep down the population of the pest, because even pests have pests. And those broad-spectrum OP insecticides, if, if they were sprayed at the wrong time, could do in those potentially beneficial insects, 
so they needed a more targeted approach. Well, these principles of monitoring, thinking in terms of economic threshold, and judicious use of chemicals became the core of integrated pest management. And I was fortunate that most of the grape growers I met in my early days in ag were the kind of farmers who were striving to implement this new idea. I met a few growers that we used to call nozzle heads who didn't want to change, but over time I watched that become a smaller and smaller subset of the farming community. Over the past decades, IPM systems have been expanded, refined, and improved. I think a better term for it today might be SCPM, or Sustainable Crop Pest Management. One of the big advancements has been a change in the kind of pesticides available. First of all, EPA carefully evaluates all the pesticides, new and old, and has eliminated those that can't be used in a safe fashion. Also, most of the pesticide used today are far more selective and far less hazardous to people or bees or birds or fish. When most people think about pesticides, they imagine something really toxic, but that isn't true of most of the products in use on farms today. There are also getting to be more and more biological control products, which are organisms from nature that we've learned to use as a way to control pests, and those tend to be low-hazard options as well. In fact, there are quite a few crop protection chemicals that farmers use that don't actually even kill the pest. For instance, there are repellents or sex pheromones that just confuse the insects and keep the males from finding the females to mate. This is why the use of crop protection agents is a better way to describe the range of options that's in use today. Another advance in IPM has to do with better targeting. Just getting the crop protection agent in the right place at the right dose at the right time. A major example of that is something called seed treatment. A young seedling is at a very vulnerable stage of crop growth, and pests then can do a lot of damage. By putting fungicides, insecticides, and biocontrol agents right on the seeds, they're there just where they're needed, and the total amount being applied is dramatically lower than it would be if you sprayed the crop. Another good example would be insect-resistant crops. By inserting a gene to produce the natural insecticidal protein Bt, genetically engineered crops like cotton or corn or brinjal in India can be protected from their worst pests. And in that case, the insecticide is being delivered inside of the plant, so there isn't any effect on bees or other non-target things in or around the field. The Bt is also a prime example of a highly selective pesticide, because each Bt protein only affects a limited range of insects, like just caterpillars or just beetles. In the case of Bt corn, the reduced insect damage has also reduced the mycotoxins that can occur when certain fungi grow in a damaged plant. And those rather natural mycotoxins are far more dangerous in animal feed or human food than modern pesticides. Another kind of targeting is to only spray hot spots in the field, where maybe the pest is just getting started. Someday, this might be done using autonomous robots or drones. Now, some of the advancements in pest control enable other good practices from a sustainability perspective. A system of seed treatments and herbicide choices can make it possible for farmers to avoid having to mechanically till the field. And that is great for avoiding erosion and the off-site movement of nutrients or pesticides in, or the soil itself into streams and rivers. It can also help sequester carbon in the soil, particularly when combined with cover cropping, 
which is something else that requires a good weed management strategy to be feasible. Another IPM strategy that is widely used is being very careful to avoid introducing new pests. So, for instance, growers can utilize certified clean seed that doesn't bring along any seeds of weeds or maybe fungus diseases or nematodes. And if there are certain soil burn pests in some fields or regions but not others, farmers can be very careful to decontaminate any equipment or even shoes moving back and forth between those locations. A sound IPM weed control system doesn't let harmful weeds grow long enough to make more seeds, and that way over time the population in the field declines. That also is good for protecting the neighbor's fields or surrounding wildlands in the, in the case of invasive weeds that spread. If you think about it, a good and effective pest management system is crucial for the overall sustainability of a farm because to allow too much pest damage means that critical resources like land and water aren't being used efficiently. Getting the timing of pest control right for this economic goal is aided by some increasingly sophisticated ways of detecting the pests and or modeling how weather affects their populations over time. There are even now traps that can identify microscopic spores of specific plant diseases so that the farmer knows when it's necessary to do something to protect the crop from that infection. The other payoff from a good IPM program can not be just the yield of the crop, but also its quality and the potential for reducing food waste all the way down the line from farm to table. Now, to be sustainable, a pest management system also has to be resilient. And that's why farmers try to use diverse tactics so there will be less risk of selecting for pests that become genetically resistant to one particular tool. Wherever possible, farmers view genetic resistance in the crop itself and applied crop protection products. Growers also take steps to favor the various natural forms of pest suppression, like predators or parasites of the pests. Sometimes that might involve planting some particular kind of plant on the field border that's a good home and, and feeds these beneficials. Sometimes it can involve actively bringing in some of these good guy agents. For instance, it's a pretty standard procedure in strawberry production today to spread a tiny little parasitic mite around that preys on the spider mites that are the things that hurt the plant. Actually, recently people have been starting to do that spreading step using a small drone so that somebody doesn't have to walk up and down all the rows to spread out the little mites. So I've tried to describe at least some of the advances in integrated pest management, things that I've had the privilege to watch developing over these last few decades. Now, the exact mix varies with the crop and where the region where that's being grown, but in every case, we've come a long ways in terms of efficiency, environmental impact, and human safety. So, back to the tree falling in the forest analogy. Just the fact that very few consumers know the story of IPM in no way means that it didn't happen. Indeed, the fact that farmers can produce more on the land that we already farm is one of the best ways to prevent the need to cut down trees in the forests to make space for more crops. So if a tree doesn't fall in the forest, the farmers get some credit.
You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.